We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right The rich Muslims, the Effendi, who owned a great deal of land in Palestine, whether they lived in Jerusalem or not, had a lot of influence with the local administrator of those lands. The most important of the local administrators appointed by Constantinople was the Sultan. There was also a lot of attention paid to Palestine in Constantinople, the capital of the Ottoman Empire. The newly established Jewish farm settlements were paying proper wages to the Muslims who worked for them. The rich Muslims, the Effendi, had never done that. That was one of the reasons they had become so rich, by exploiting the poor, ignorant, peasant Muslim farmers, the Fellahin. The Effendi very often forced these peasant farmers off the land because they found that the Jews were able to come up with ridiculous amounts of money to buy what was, frankly, appalling land. Still, as the old legal warning goes, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Poor Muslim peasant farmers started to be expelled from their land by the rich Muslim landowners more and more often from about 1880, with the increasing number of Jews wanting land to start farms. Where did these Jews get their money from? Well, some came from other Sephardic Jews living in Muslim countries. There had long been a duty on Jews living away from the Holy Land to send what money they could to the Jews who were actually on the land. But the real money especially came from the fabulously rich Jews in Europe, like Baron Rothschild and Moses Montefiore, being able to pay the extortionate prices that the Effendi found that they could ask for and get. This fact alone kills the argument that the Jews were no worse off living under Muslims than living under Europeans. There were ways to the top for Jews in Europe. One Jew, Benjamin Disraeli, was the Prime Minister of England in 1868 and again from 1874 to 1880. Jews were certainly singled out as being different, but there were none of the crushing religious beliefs that had seen the Jews so terribly oppressed and abused in Muslim countries. This is seen in the report from the British ambassador in Jerusalem, W.T. Young, to Viscount Palmerston on 13 May 1839, when he wrote, The spirit of toleration towards the Jews is not yet known here to the same extent it is in Europe. Still, the Jew in Jerusalem is not estimated in value much above a dog. But selling the land of the Jews at an enormous profit was a two-edged sword for the Effendi, because they were losing their lowly paid peasant farmers to the new Jewish farmers. And if they wanted to keep them, they were being forced to pay their peasant farmers more than ever before. But there was one thing that united the Effendi and the Fellahin, and that was their common religion, Islam. More importantly, the beliefs of that religion had for almost the time that the Jews had lived in countries ruled by Muslim, and to this very day, shaped how Muslims saw, reacted to, and treated the Jews. And that is what I'm going to talk about in this 
program. The most fundamental problem preventing the Muslims and the Jews living together in peace was and is the religion of Islam. Here is a clear illustration of what part religion plays in shaping a society. From the very beginning of the emergence of the Jewish race in the first books of the Bible, known as the Torah, the books attributed to Moses, a revolutionary view of the world is revealed. For present purposes, let's look at how Jews were told to treat strangers. Nothing like it had ever been seen before. Leviticus 19.34 says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10.19 says, And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And finally, Exodus 22.21 says, Do not ill-treat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Treating strangers well appears to have been unusual in the world of 2000 BC, maybe unique. It's still the case in many countries in the world today. The German-Jewish philosopher who lived in the late 19th, early 20th century, Hermann Cohen, summed up the relationship between the Jews and strangers when he said, The stranger was to be protected, although he was not a member of one's family, clan, religion, community or people, simply because he was a human being. In the stranger, therefore, man discovered the idea of humanity. Seeing others as real people, as real as we are, makes it very difficult to mistreat them. Maybe this has something to do with the fact that today about 20% of the population of Israel are Muslims, and the percentage of Jews in the populations of Muslim countries is close to 0%. If you think that that's odd, I'll explain why things are that way in a minute. As I said, it would seem the more usual, well a bit extraordinary, this example, situation of strangers in the ancient world is portrayed in the story of the two angels who visited Lot, the nephew of Abraham, who was living in Sodom. The angels were coming to warn Lot to leave the city because God was going to destroy it because of its extreme sinfulness. Genesis 19.4-5 tells us that this is what happened when they visited. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Okay, so how did Muslims treat the Jewish strangers living among them? The Jews were always strangers. They were never accepted as equals. The attitude of Muslims to Jews is very particularly and specifically directed at them. And it's not pleasant. Jews are treated by Muslims as the Quran and the Hadith, a supplementary holy book of Islam, based on quotes said to have been from the words and deeds of Muhammad, tells them to do. And the view of these holy books are, not surprisingly, also reflected in various speeches made by Muslim leaders about the Jews over the years. Islam in general takes a particularly hostile attitude to people who aren't Muslims. That includes Jews and Christians. Now, there are certainly passages in the Quran which is accepted by Muslims as being the infallible word of God delivered to Muhammad nearly 1,400 years ago that are friendly towards the Jews. But there are other verses in surahs and passages in the Hadith that aren't welcoming to Jews, that are downright murderous towards them. So what's the real position of Islam towards the Jews as taught by Muhammad? 
to properly understand what's said in the Quran, you have to understand how it was compiled into the book it is today and what difficulties that creates in how you understand what's being said. The Quran is made up of verses believed by Muslims to have been written by the Prophet Muhammad as dictated to him by the angel Gabriel. The verses vary in length. The Quran has been put together based on the length of the verses, not in the date order that they were written, not chronologically. For my purposes right now, a useful translation of the Quran was put together by Nesim Joseph Dawood, who was born in Baghdad, Iraq, in 1927, and emigrated to England in 1945. He's famous for his translations of the Quran, Tales from 1001 Arabian Nights, and other books. His translation of the Quran lists the verses by the date they were written, that is, in chronological order. This is revealing on the question of the attitude of Muhammad towards the Jews. At the beginning of Muhammad's preachings, this new religion of Islam had hoped that the Jews and the Christians would come on board. During that period, the verses that are friendly to followers of those religions were written. But when that hope wasn't realized, the tone of the surahs and verses became much more aggressive towards them. So now I'll go through some of the verses from the Quran and quotes from the Hadith that fit with how the Jews have mostly been treated for over a thousand years by the Muslims. One of the relatively well-known passages, I think, in the Hadith reads, The resurrection of the dead will not come until the Muslims will war with the Jews and the Muslims will kill them. The trees and the rocks will say, O Muslim, O Abdullah, here is the Jew behind me. Come and kill him. Surah 3, verse 112 reads, Ignominy, read humiliation, and shall be their portion, that's the Jews, wheresoever they are found, they have incurred anger from their Lord, and wretchedness is laid upon them, because they disbelieve the revelations of Allah, and slew the prophets wrongfully, because they were rebellious and used to transgress. Surah 2, verse 96, And thou wilt find them, that's the Jews, the greediest of mankind. Surah 2 verse 90 reads, Evil is that for which they sell their souls, for disbelievers is a terrible doom. Surah 3 verse 181, Taste ye, that's the Jews, the punishment of burning. Surah 3 verses 117 to 120, They, that's the Jews, are the heirs of hell. They will spare no pains to corrupt you, they desire nothing but your ruin. Their hatred is clear from what they say. When evil befalls you, they rejoice. Surah 4, verses 160 to 161. Because of the wrongdoing of the Jews, and of their taking usury, and of their devouring people's wealth by false pretenses, we have prepared for those of them who disbelieve a painful doom. Surah 4, verse 46. Allah has cursed them, that's the Jews, for their disbelief. Surah 4, verse 101. In truth, the disbelievers, that's the Jews, are an open enemy to you. Surah 5, verse 51. O ye who believe, take not the Jews and Christians for friends. Surah 5, verses 62 to 66. They, the Jews, spread evil in the land. Surah 2 verses 71 to 85, the Jews knowingly perverted the word of Allah, 
know of nothing except lies, commit evil, and become engrossed in sin. You can take what you want from these quotes, mostly from the Quran, but I'm not reading brotherly love in any of this towards the Jews. I know what you're thinking. The Jews could have left the unwelcoming Muslim lands and gone back to where they came from. Article 20 of the PLO Charter says that the Jews are citizens of the states to which they belong. I'm not clear what that means. It's not how many of the Arab states saw things at the time of the PLO Charter, or for thousands of years before then, and more often than not today. Today, Jews can't become citizens of Syria, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Libya, Algeria, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. And they couldn't during the thousand-odd years that they lived under Muslim rules before the creation of the modern state of Israel. The PLO Charter denies that the Jews living in the Holy Lands for 2,500 years before the first Muslims arrived in 635 AD were still there when they arrived. My previous programs make it clear that Jews have lived continuously in the Holy Lands, although often many have been forced to leave those lands. In previous programs, I've traced the incredibly poor treatment of Jews in Muslim countries over a thousand years, but I'll revisit that briefly with some new material that I haven't used in my earlier programs. There were times when the Christian minorities in Muslim countries were more persecuted by the Muslims than the Jews. This particularly happened during the Middle Ages. The Christians had one option that wasn't open to the Jews. They could go home, back to Europe. The Jewish home, Palestine, was occupied by Muslims who were in control of the country. As I've shown you in previous programs, many Jews had regardless of the fact that going home was not going to result in any better treatment than was being handed out to them in other Muslim countries that they were living in, still made the trip home. After Europe had risen to be a dominant power in the world, thanks to vastly improved technologies, which the Muslims had never really attempted to follow, the European countries were able to bring pressure to bear on Muslim regimes over their treatment of the Jews. Historian Bernard Lewis, in his book Islam in History, wrote, European travellers to the East in the age of liberalism and emancipation are almost unanimous in deploring the degraded and precarious position of Jews in Muslim countries and the dangers and humiliations to which they were subject. Jewish scholars acquainted with the history of Islam and with the current situation in Islamic lands can have no illusions on this score. Arminius Vanbury is unambiguous. I do not know any more miserable, helpless and pitiful individuals on God's earth than the Yahudi, he means the Jews, in those countries. The poor Jew is despised, belaboured and tortured alike by Muslim, Christian and Brahmin. From my previous programs, it's apparent that life for the Jews under Muslim rule was cruel, humiliating and dangerous. Life in Europe varied. The pogroms against the Jews in Russia tended to be the most persistent and severe outside Muslim countries. But the Jews there had at least over time been able to become well established. Some had become extremely wealthy. Their wealth was going to fund the establishment of Jewish farming communities in the Holy Land. And that was going to lead ultimately to the creation of the State of Israel. I've talked in previous programs about the revitalization among Jews, a reawakening from the deep sleep that they had been in for over a thousand years.
is particularly started from about 1880, many years before the European Zionists, people claiming a homeland for the Jews, began. The British consul in Jerusalem, PJC McGregor, reported to Sir I. Mallet on 15 March 1914 that the Jews' nationalist spirit was showing increased vigour. Jewish education was an important part of that. One of the British actively supporting and helping the re-establishment of the Jews in their land was Arthur Rupin. Rupin recorded in his diary, Today I succeeded in buying from Sir John Grey Hill his large and magnificently situated property on Mount Scopus, thus acquiring the first piece of ground for the Jewish University in Jerusalem. Before the outbreak of World War I, Rupin recorded, On Passover, 1914, many rich Zionist tourists were prepared to invest money, and our work was increasing from day to day. But first, there was a war to be fought. Although the war started for the European countries in August 1914, the Ottoman Empire didn't join until it attacked Russia's Black Sea coast on 29 October 1914, with Russia declaring war on Turkey on 2 November 1914. On 11 November 1914, Sultan Mehmed V. Rashid declared war on Britain, France and Russia. In Jerusalem, jihad, holy war, was proclaimed in Al-Aqsa. The history of the return of the Jews to the Holy Lands was variously at different times, so many steps forward and so many steps back. Sometimes there were far more steps backward than there were steps forward. World War I turned out to be a bit like that for Jews, stepping backwards. Rupin recorded in his diary that the Turks, commanded by Bahaud Din on 17 December 1914, ordered all Jews in Jaffa who were not Ottoman subjects to be immediately deported. As an example, he ordered all of them, including nursing mothers and their infants included, to be thrown into jail by 4pm that afternoon. The use of Hebrew was banned. Hebrew had been used for generations. This flies in the face of a persistent myth that Hebrew was reborn with the modern state of Israel, but in reality, it seems to have remained in constant use in the Holy Lands, even in other places where Jews were living under Muslims. Ha-Lebanon was the first Hebrew weekly newspaper. It had been founded in Jerusalem in 1864. In 1877, Habazeleth, the Rose, another Jewish paper, became the only publication approximating a weekly newspaper printed in Palestine for many years. The Jews had been the first people in the Ottoman Empire to have a printing press illegally smuggled into Safed in 1563. Printing presses didn't become legal in the Ottoman Empire until 1729. The Jewish newspapers were banned, so were Jewish posters, signs and anything like them. Postage stamps with the image of the founders of the Zionist movement, Theodor Herzl and Max Norder, were banned. Local money used in the Jewish settlements of Zikaron, Petak, Tikva and Rishon were also banned. Taxes were hiked up enormously. Epidemics of typhus and cholera took their toll on the Jewish immigrants. Many Jews were conscripted into the Turkish army as labour, not soldiers, and they were sent to remote parts of the empire like the Caucasus or Mesopotamia. After Jaffa, the long-established Jewish settlements at Petak Tikva and Tel Aviv were brutally evacuated of Jews by the Turks. 
Jewish farming operations were crippled when the farming equipment, farm carts, wagons, mules and oxen, vital to carrying on the farming of the new Jewish settlements, were taken by the government. The worst thing that happened just before the harvest was going to begin. This precipitous and possibly malicious action by the government may have been a little short-sighted because the country was soon suffering from near-famine conditions. Many of the Jews who had recently arrived from Europe and other Muslim countries left and went back to where they'd come from. 11,277 had left by the end of 1915. The Jewish population dropped from 85,000 in 1914 to 58,000 at the end of the war. The Muslims had long complained about the Turkish rulers, an Asiatic race, but now that they had the chance to get rid of them with the help of the infidel British, the Turks didn't seem so bad. There is, of course, the story of the Arab Revolt, led by that larger-than-life figure, Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence. And I'll tell you about him and the Jewish resistance to the Turks and the help they gave to the British. Mostly in the next program, but a little bit here, it's not going to be the romanticised David Lean version that you saw in the movie Lawrence of Arabia. What did the British learn about the Middle East, the Muslims and the Jews after World War I? Nothing would be an acceptable one-word answer. Or maybe I could say all the wrong things. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>